People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood, but it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. Should I just keep going? Honestly, I could read this entire uh, no. book because I could make an audio book yeah. right now. <laughs> See, I want you to keep going, but I had to pause this so we don't get sued for copyright. Uh, but it's, honestly... It's, it's a short book. I could just keep I going. I know. It's a quick read, and you're so dang good at accents. I'm not just saying... I'm not just playing that up for the podcast. <laughs> Laura, you are like actually really good at impressions. It, it's... Lord, you can do you can do a great Australian accent. You can do a great British accent. Different parts of England you can do. <laughs> you're you're amazing. I'm a studier of the human condition. <laughs> See, look at her go. <laughs> no. Anyways, what are we doing today? Oh wait, well, we're I'm getting ahead of myself. That's right. <laughs> Welcome. Slow down a pace. <laughs> I know, like those cowboys and rangers in Arkansas mm -hmm. and in the uh, Oklahoma, which was the Native American territory back then. Anyways, this is film is lit. The podcast where we take a piece of literature, compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. Today, I mean, if you know that classic opening line that's in both the book and the movie. I hope you do. I hope you do. Today we are doing True Grit. Grit. What a straightforward, bare bones, streamlined, lion-hearted, hearty American Western. Wow, you said it. Honestly, one of my absolute favorite books. I've read this multiple times now. I honestly can't tell you how many times I've read it. But the first time I read it, I shut the book, and it immediately went on my favorite book section of my 50-foot-long bookshelf. Nice. Immediately, right into my favorite section. This book is so well-written. Not only well-written, but so pure. Like, there is nothing that doesn't need to be in this book. It's perfect. <laughs> That's when I was saying, like, it's straightforward and bare-bones. That's not to say oh, yeah. that it's... A sparse story. But it's it, lacking in any way. Yeah, it's exactly how long it needs to be. It's it's just it's just a, a western story, just played completely straight, no frills to it. Yeah. Um, I struggle to. I I want to say that the film is gritty, uh, but grits in the title. But that's honestly a great descriptor of the of the story. Absolutely. It's just a grit, just American grit, and that kind of goes into my personal journey with the film, uh, my take on the violence. I saw this when I was in 10th grade, because this came out in 2010, and well, we'll get to the personal journeys there. Here, give an introduction of the book first, and then we'll go into personal oh, journeys. Oh, okay. That. Yeah. Sure. I can go into the background. So, True Grit came out in 1968. It was written by Charles Portis. And fun fact, this time reading the book, I actually listened to it on audiobook to review for the podcast, and Donna Tart reads it, who, fun fact, is the author of The Goldfinch. Oh, no way. Yes. I listened to this book as well, but I didn't know that about Donna Tart. So yes. So that's cool. And there's actually a quick essay at the end of the audiobook that she wrote as a foreword to one of the most recent editions of the book. And she talks about how long that she's loved this book. And I have to tell you, I really wish that I had read this as a kid. 
I really wish that my journey started <laughs> before the first time that I read this a couple years ago because it's just so accessible and it's so easy to understand. So right. I really wish that my journey started earlier, but it doesn't. It starts a couple years ago. <laughs> and again, to reiterate the point, just because there's nothing under the surface doesn't mean that that that's a bad thing. Oh, no. I'm not saying that Just at all. the opposite. Yeah. The fact that it's just pure Western storytelling. Yeah. Like that that makes it kind of awesome because it's just, it, I think the movie um, is infinitely watchable. It's oh, just so, absolutely. it's 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 an hour and 50 minutes, so the perfect kind of length mm -hmm. for a story like this, not too long. Well, I think a couple scenes could have been added. I'll get into that later. But yeah, thank you for introing the novel. What I really think and respect about the novel is that a lot of Westerns, or Westerns in general, don't have a lot of good roles for females, let alone, oh, yeah. <laughs> let, a, let alone young adult females. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, in Westerns, women tend to be the, the gold-hearted prostitutes. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, the sleazy whore, the, <laughs> the madam of the whorehouse. Yeah, um, or, or they, you know, serve as kind of like the uh, homemakers or like oh, yeah. stay-at-home moms or the ones who are upholders of, of decency when the men are these outlaws. Yes. And this is a complete subversion of that trope where the, the lead character is a young girl who yeah. doesn't take shit from anyone, oh, yeah. who has a goal and who is relentless in her pursuit of that goal. And, yep. and this... Um, trait is also a flaw too because you know there as what happens in the end of the book it's kind of a message of knowing your limits right because Maddie keeps on pushing 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 she's so locked onto her goal that other things kind of fall to the wayside her focus wanes in some aspects like the pit at the very end she's just so set on revenge that she doesn't even look behind her and like mm -hmm. literally falls down. Um, well, it's an interesting way of looking at it too because you see that she's so single-minded that she's really brutal and she's mm -hmm. really honest about her opinions because all that matters in the end is what she's looking for, and which is revenge for her father, which we find out in the first sentence, which is why I wanted to open the episode with that line yeah. because it's so incredible. It sets up the story, it sets up her goal, it sets up her personality. It's just an incredible way to open a book. Honestly, the first time I read that, I think I honestly ran into the living room and read it out loud to you. Yeah. <laughs> I was so taken. And again, that's where a lot of the really dry humor comes through. Because she's so single-minded that... She doesn't see sometimes that she's being really, really, really biting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. And, when she's and kind by of, guys. yeah, kind of like a dick. But but that makes yeah. her cool though. Right. Like, yeah. That makes her. You like her because she's kind of a jerk. Um, and you also sympathize her. You also sympathize with her since she's lost her father. But a line in the book that is kind of paraphrased in the movie um, is not said directly, and it should be mentioned that we are reviewing the, the 2010 Coen Brothers adaptation of True Grey, right. not the uh, 1969 adaptation. With John Wayne. John Wayne, yeah. We're right, I, I honestly had no interest. I read a little bit about it online when I was doing research for the podcast, and it kind of just sounds like it's a pretty straightforward remake, and I don't really care much about John Wayne. And it also seems to shift the focus to him more right. than it focuses on 
Maddie Ross. And so I just have no interest in seeing yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, I get it. I, I haven't seen it either, although um, I have heard the same thing that, that John Wayne, his rooster, is like the main character there. Yeah. And, but, but it is well regarded. And some sure. of the shots, it, it's also, it was shot on location in the Colorado Rockies. So the, oh, some of the imagery and the cinematography actually still holds up to this day from what I've seen of it. But yeah, I didn't really have any interest either, so I'm glad we're going with this. I mean, this is so well made. How yeah. can you top this? <laughs> it's a Coen Brothers movie. I mean, that's kind of what you get the gold standard. with them. Yeah. Right. Well, how about we go back to Journeys? Do you want to share your Journeys oh, story? Oh, before, I will do that, but I was about to say the line that's in the book right. that I think is my favorite line in the book is that at the beginning maddie the book is narrated by maddie and she says yeah. some people were bothered with the fact that that i didn't go to my father's funeral well i had some business to attend to it's like <laughs> yes. yeah it's like that, that hell encapsulates yeah encapsulates exactly her personality and and with a lot of the dialogue taken straight from the book into this movie, I'm yes. surprised that that line wasn't in it either, because there is some narration too. But right. anyways, yeah. But yeah, okay, so my journey. I saw this, this came out 2010, like I said, junior year or so, no, sophomore year in high school. Went to see it with my friends, and this actually was a big hit. And I'd heard a lot about it. And the trailers, as trailers do, they played up all the action in the movie. Which, when you watch the movie, there is action in it, but it is not like a, a gunslinging shoot 'em up. Mm -hmm. It is very much a uh, like a western pursuit movie. Mm -hmm. It's not slow, but it's not action packed either. So I went in with this expectation. That it was going to be an action shoot 'em up, and I also knew I just started getting into the Coen Brothers, like watching Fargo and No Country for Old Men, um, some other Road Raising Arizona. I just and I'm like, wow, these guys are really good. I was a little underwhelmed my first watch, which is unfair because I went. It's unfair to the movie because I went in with these big mm -hmm. expectations, and now I think watching it, this was the third time I watched it for mm -hmm. this podcast. I like it more and more every time I watch it. I also forget how funny the movie is. It's so it, funny. And this is... <laughs> so is the book. They're yeah, so good. That's due to so funny. Uh, you know Charles Portis's text, but it's also due to great performances, especially from oh, yes. Jeff Bridges. Let's just get right into it. <laughs> Jeff Bridges, he is incredible. So he, he was rightly nominated for Best Actor for this movie. He didn't win. But how wait, who did he lose? So he lost to Colin Firth for the King's Speech, which I, I get it. That Colin Firth performance there is pretty <sighs> groundbreaking. Whatever. Say what you yeah. will about King's Speech, I hate that it beat the social network and Inception for Best Picture. That is sacrilegious, but the <laughs> but Colin Firth deserved the win. But however, Jeff Bridges amazing in this Incredible. and he has so many quotes i mean you can barely understand him half the time <laughs> that's part of what's so funny but th that's part but... of it's so funny and you can understand him just enough to know right. what he's saying and, right? and his physical acting also expresses exactly obviously the mood that he's trying to get across <laughs> right i think yeah like 
like when he faces up against the Lucky Ned Pepper at the end of the movie, he goes, fill your hands, you son of a bitch. <laughs> it's just like the fun, and it's badass and hilarious well, at the same time. And honestly, another quote that I want to highlight is when he grunts, he goes, well, that didn't work out. <laughs> oh, yeah. <no. laughs> yeah, after the kind of the shootout there, yeah. um, the long range shootout, goes, well, yeah. Um, that didn't work out. <laughs> Or when he's he's drunk and he's trying to shoot the bottle on the ground, and he goes, he shoots it. and He goes, huh? That Chinaman is running them cheap shells on me again. Oh we could. Gosh. This podcast is just gonna turn into us just quoting, quoting the, the whole uh, the movie. Yeah, and it, the book. That's something that I really want to highlight about the movie that I really appreciate because. The narration really doesn't change. It's pretty consistent throughout the movie, at least in like really important parts where Maddie has some great lines. For example, literally her line when she says, they told me you had true grit. Yeah. <laughs> and the lines of the characters for the most part don't change. You know, even down to the courtroom scene when Maddie first meets rooster that whole court scene is pretty much exactly in the book and how the lawyer sets up the whole murder scene and that's quite a comical scene too right when he's setting up the whole thing about how the guy that rooster shot couldn't have been found with his arm in the fire if rooster had shot him in self-defense right <laughs> like he was saying like all of those lines are pretty much exactly the way they appear in the book and it's so critical honestly that they kept that because another part of the sort of linguistic comedy that's pulled into the novel and the writing is how sometimes the characters actually speak in a way that you realize it's actually Maddie's memory mm. of how things were. There's a line that I specifically wanted to highlight that really drives that point home. And it's when, uh, when Rooster says to Maddie, you'll sometimes let money interfere with your notion of what is right. Like, mm. that doesn't necessarily sound the way that he says it at least in the novel is not exactly how rooster sounds normally it's kind of one of those moralistic things that maddie's kind of constantly spitting out mm -hmm. so i think it's a really 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 great way of showing that this is a, an account that maddie's remembering and writing down after the fact that's that's a very interesting take because I didn't get that at all. And that completely makes it's sense. It's subtle. Yeah. It's really subtle. And obviously the characters are so well developed that you don't notice in a lot of ways. And you should be able to sort of meld between the past and the future really easily. But that's sort of the whole, I think one of the whole points too with the book and the movie is like all of this kind of happens in the American West that's so legendary. And everyone has these like very specific ideas about what everything felt like and everything looked like and so it's really powerful to be able to put yourself in that but you have to remember like it is a memory you know and it might be a little bit tinged by that by those years those yeah past years. it might be a little tinged and biased towards nostalgia and mm -hmm. what, the mem what the narrator is thinking uh you mentioned the courtroom scene i wanted to highlight a certain supporting actor uh his name is joe stevens he played the the cross examining lawyer oh my gosh. he just had that one scene and this kind of goes into the that that message of there are no small parts in, oh, in movies. And, and, the, and this well guy said. and this guy Joe Stevens he hasn't acted in a lot but he he hasn't even acted in a lot of Coen Brothers movies either which is odd because Coen Brothers they usually like work with a lot of 
the mm-hmm. same people. But this one scene, he plays the cross-examining lawyer, and he and he kills it. He is such a he has such a signature jaunt, the way he walks and, and his voice is mm. so signature. He completely takes this scene, which is has good dialogue to begin with, but he also elevates it and plays off oh, of, yeah. of this classic actor, Jeff Bridges, his performance. They play off each other great, and there's some great quotes mm-hmm. uh, like this lawyer. So you say that when Amos Wharton raises axe, you backed away from him. And Rooster goes, that's right. And then he goes to Ross Xavier Laura goes, in what direction were you going? And then <laughs> Rooster goes, I always go backwards when backing up. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole courtroom explodes. Explodes. And, and then the lawyer, he looks back and is like, what are you guys doing? And I, I just wanted to highlight Joe Stevens because I, I haven't seen him in I anything agree. else. But he, I mean, we both looked at each other and like we're like, this guy's great. He nails that. And the, the way that he reveals the gotcha moment of how there are, you know, two witnesses that will confirm two. that. Yeah the murdered man was found with his arm in the fire and he couldn't have been found there unless he had not been shot in self-defense like Rooster's claiming happened. And when they go about like, well, maybe the pig's moving. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't remember moving the body. Yeah. Well, maybe the pig's moving. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, sorry for continuing to quote the movie, no, but well, it's just so funny. I, I, I have one more quote and then we'll stop. Or from okay. that scene when I, I, and this was in the trailer for this movie, but when the lawyer, he asks him, uh, Rooster, how many men that he shot. And Rooster goes, shot or killed? And then he goes, let us restrict it to killed so we have a more manageable figure. And it's such a, like, and that's, yeah, again, not to gush about the Coen brothers, but that's kind of like, that's what you get from them. Oh, yeah. Uh, You get these, like, really unique performances. I mean, good, good is, is granted, right? Mm -hmm. That they're going to be good if it's Mm -hmm. a Coen brothers movie. But it's, like, really unique and, and weird. You can kind of expect it to be weird and quirky. They kind of have this signature style. But in terms of quirkiness, this is kind of, I would say this is one of the Coen Brothers' most kind of straightforward mm-hmm. films. Like we've been saying, the story is very straightforward and they they adapt it basically, you know, right on from page to screen. All they really do to change things is just condense everything. Maybe mm-hmm. they switch around a couple events here and there, mm-hmm. but really much just a straight adaptation. So this is just kind of just like straightforward. And the late, great Roger Ebert in his review was quoted by saying, what strikes me is that I'm describing the story in the film as if it were simply, if admirably, a good Western. That's a surprise to me because this is a film by the Coen brothers and this is the first straight genre exercise in their career. It's a loving one, and their craftsmanship is a wonder. Yeah, like what a what a great way to put it. And then yeah. he also, I I'm surprised I haven't mentioned this by now. The cinematography is by my boy Roger Deakins. Deakins. You know he was nominated for this, <laughs> didn't win. That ties in nicely to my next point. That this movie came out in 2010 at the mm-hmm. 2011 Oscars. It was nominated for 10. Oscars. I can believe it. <laughs> Guess how many it won? I already know the answer. Zero. <laughs> it <awful>. won zero <laughs> Oscars after is... being nominated for 10. And it goes down in history as one of the most ever nominated films to not win an Oscar. The only other films that have been nominated for more awards and have won zero were 
the turning point in 1977 and the color purple in 1986 both those films were nominated for 11 oscars and wow. didn't win any but but right after them there's true grit with 10 nominations no wins it well, was nominated for sorry to interrupt it was nominated for production design best production design best sound editing and sound mixing which now as of this recording they now have been joined to one category best achievement in in costume design, best achievement for my boy in cinematography, Roger Deakins, um, best adapted screenplay, best directing for Ethan and Joel Cohen, best performance by an actor in leading role, Jeff Bridges, best picture, and I saved this one for last because you're gonna flip out. Haley Steinfeld, who plays Maddie Ross, mm -hmm. she was nominated for best supporting actress that is strange isn't that, that the is weirdest really thing weird. she is she's the main character she's the main character and i have to be honest i don't love her performance Ooh, interesting i, I love yeah, it it's there are some moments where okay so to back up let's go back to the book the language is a little bit stilted and i'll be honest after the first sentence that hooked me and made me fall in love with the book immediately it took me a little while to get used to the lack of contractions because every single world word is spelled out there's never really a word that is spelled like for example can't or don't or won't it's all it is and cannot and that language kind of held me back a little bit sometimes i was a little bit annoyed but i understand that it's an it's a dialect and i just think watching the girl who plays maddie Haley it's Steinfeld. like it kind of looks like she has something in her mouth the whole time, which to in my head, and I again, this is like a total opinion, and I do think she's really great for the most part, but sometimes it looks like she's trying to follow the directions of a dialect coach. Because she, just her mouth looks like she's trying really hard to make those dialect sounds. And so sometimes that takes it out for me. Most of the time during most of the movie, I agree. She's really, really great. And I really enjoy her. But there are some moments where it's like, I wish she was just a little bit more natural with that hmm. accent. Well, yes, you have <laughs> a right to your opinion, but you're also wrong. But yeah, the, um, okay. Well, but, yeah, but she was nominated. It, the critic Mark Kermode has a great quote. He was like, if Haley Steinfeld is a supporting actress, then best actress goes to Matt Damon. <laughs> so <laughs> Matt Damon plays LaBeef. Now, I have yeah. a LaBeef. I can't believe it's pronounced LaBeef. <laughs> Shia LaBeef. Um, but I actually have a hot take kind of like that. I liked Matt Damon's performance a little more on my third viewing. I think he's slightly miscast. Not for his acting, but kind of, he just doesn't, he didn't look to me like he belonged in that era. Sure. And he also, it's interesting that this movie was nominated for best makeup and hairstyling, because I actually think the hair, like the mutton chops on Matt Damon, they look kind of fake. I, I didn't really, I wasn't really convinced. And he also, also was wearing a wig. I didn't, wasn't really impressed with that so i i don't know whenever matt huh. damon the, and this, this was kind of happened the first time i saw it too I, I really thought matt damon was miscast now the second and third time i watched it i got some of the more humor out of it and i realized that you know he's supposed to be the, the character that you clearly you make fun of and supposed to dislike for the 
Because it's a little bit too preppy for the the, the Wild West. A little bit too preppy. And and the first time I watched it, I was kind of a little put off by the two, not sexual advances he made towards Maddie, but, you know, his line, and that's in the book, that he's just like... When you're sleeping, I thought about stealing the kiss from you. And then I'm like, what? Like, why would... I'm like the spanking thing. And then then the movie spanks. And it's played for comedy in the movie, but it kind of... I think it's a little much in terms of tone. And I don't think Matt Damon really sells it. But again, as I'm saying, I'm trying to get get back to the point that now in the third time I watched it, I appreciated it a little bit more. But yeah, I kind of... He just... Matt Damon just... And I normally... Love Matt Damon. Well, let me say that right here. So, I don't know. The, his performance, I don't think, is really works for the movie. But, I mean, Jeff, you can't beat Jeff Bridges. And, <laughs> no. and I, I, I mean, I think Haley Steinfeld's incredible. It's kind of insane that she was nominated for Best Supporting. The argument is that, like, she had a better chance of winning. But it's like, that does, I mean... <laughs> Yeah. She didn't win, so it's like best right. actor. Well, and isn't there isn't there that whole thing where like young actresses or young actors don't usually win the first time they're nominated because older actresses or actors like it does it shouldn't matter if she was nominated for best supporting if she wasn't favored to win like just then nominate her for best actress because yeah. she is the only actress really in <laughs> yeah. this movie and she is the narrator like yeah like that feels a little sexist to me yeah. which is interesting because this book isn't really feminist on its face I think that's something that I actually really like about this movie yes I it's, have it and the book so specifically like when you read it Maddie is is a little bit racist like there are a couple times where she isn't I guess PC in our era toward Native Americans or black people and she's not feminist like even in the first line she's not telling this story because she wants to be an inspiration to anybody I think she writes it because she wants to make money like there are a couple times that she notes that she wrote articles and sold them to newspapers or tried to sell them and wasn't successful because they didn't give her enough money. Like, yeah. she's very economical. And at the end of the book, she's unmarried. She is clearly doing very well for herself. She's also taking care of her mom. But, like, these things are not, again, because she wants to be a feminist. They're just, she's a really gritty woman. And yeah. that's, I love that. Like, as much as I love to be a feminist and read feminist writing, I also think it's really lovely that she's just being unapologetically herself. She's not trying to be anything else. And that's really what's so endearing about her, even though she's a little bit prickly. I love it. Like, that's really great. Actually, I also wanted to mention that Charles Portis died in February of this year. Oh, no way. Yeah, I forgot to mention at the beginning, but he actually died on the 18th of February of this year, so he's very recently passed. But... I read an opinion online, and actually Donna Tartt said this too in her essay, the John Wayne movie kind of eclipsed the book in Right, a lot because of ways. it came out a year after it was right. published, which is an insane turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great, and, and a lot of people really loved it, but it kind of eclipsed the book. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why the book started taking a back seat, because the movie was so popular and obviously iconic. Mm-hmm. But to me, that really sucks. <laughs> like, you know, I had a really long conversation with my dad uh, over a couple weekends ago about how what a shame it is that reading material that's given to middle schoolers and high schoolers nowadays, the reading lists are really just out of date. And mm-hmm. I was talking to him about how much I really wish that teachers who give, you know, students reading lists would 
consider different things than Catcher in the Rye or The Great Gatsby or, God forbid, the worst novel ever written in the history of everything, The Lord of the Flies. <laughs> the Lord of the Fries? Flies. <laughs> like, why was I assigned that in eighth grade to read? I It just... So I agree with your point. I just want to interject. I personally love Lord of the Flies, but yes, I agree with okay. your overall point. My base, yeah, my point is that young people shouldn't be assigned books that are completely centralized around white males, mm -hmm. white yeah. American males. Absolutely. And I really wish, like, I would give this to my daughter or my son or anybody because it's fun. It's a really straightforward novel, and it's a really good way of introducing children to different kinds of narrators. I just don't understand why this isn't considered part of the American canon for yeah, it, literature right now, like currently. I think it certainly was at a certain time, but right now it's just completely forgotten. Yeah, <laughs> it's so American in its bones and right. its blood. And yeah, love it for those reasons. For sure. Yeah, no, um, I, I certainly wish that Got it in high school, I'll, I'll tell you that much. Or even middle school, although middle school Danny probably wouldn't have made it through that text. But um, It's a short book. I think you could have gotten through it. I don't know. I think you're thinking too much of middle school Danny. <laughs> um, but yeah, high, high school Danny maybe. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. R.I.P. Charles Portis. Yeah, well, let's go into some changes um, between yeah. the book and the film. There are not a lot, mm -hmm. but there are there. I think a cool little change that, that I found in my research. Um, so in the novel, the local sheriff describes Cheney as being now over in the territory. That's the quote. But the Coens turn this into having him say that Cheney lit out for the territory and not in the direction of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, where, where that phrase occurs in the book's penultimate sentence. So that's kind of a little huh. short little thing that I found. Interesting. Um, I think the change that I, I really liked that's more kind of viewing friendly was in the book, Portis goes out of his way to like make Rooster unlikable. I mean, mm. you still like him, but he's definitely more likable in the movie as opposed to in the book. Like in the book, he, Portis lets you know that he abandoned his family. He robbed banks. He rode with Quantrill's terrorists, basically. And, the, and kind of in the movie, they say all that, but... Jeff Bridges is so charming. They really play up Rooster's yeah. charm. And then in that whole Quantrill terrorist thing, it's kind of up for debate whether or not Rooster was like really involved when it started getting yeah, serious. Yeah, it's like the legendary yeah. Yeah, thing surrounding it. Right. So, yeah, the movie definitely played into making Rooster um, a little more screen-friendly, which is not... They didn't sacrifice his character at all in I doing agree. that. Yeah, I think they rounded out... Right, yeah, they, they definitely made him a little bit more fun, uh, funnier, too. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Bridges, I mean, he just completely dives into that character, and he does, his right. voice is just, his throat, I, did he eat rocks before each take? You know, it sounds detail, like that. something I love about a good film adaptation is how it'll take a character and make it a little bit deeper by adding the visual cues. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love 
that Jeff Bridges does is how he takes his tobacco string <laughs> from mm. the tobacco pouch and he Puts takes his, his tongue and kind of like, wow, yeah. <laughs> like obviously the listeners can't see me, but if you watch the movie, you know exactly what he's doing because he like, he can't be bothered to fully hold all the things that he has in his hands. Usually it's a gun and a tobacco sack and the cigarette papers and like all of these things that he's trying to juggle. And like the way that he takes the pouch string in his mouth is just so old man, gritty, like I have nothing to lose. <laughs> it's just yeah. a great little detail. He's like out of breath all the time. And oh, that's another, right. that's another change is that Rooster's age. Mm. In the book, he's supposed to be around uh, 40s, like yeah. early 40s. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like he is so grizzled and has treated his body so poorly that by the time he's 40, he looks and acts like he's 60. But in both uh, this version and in 1969 with John Wayne, both those actors were around uh, 60. Right. They're supposed to be like at the yeah. tail end of their golden age. Right. Which makes it, I mean, again, perfect casting where Jeff Bridges, he's just old enough to be like an old man, but at the same well, especially time. during the time period right. Right, where your body would have been yeah. more worn down at yeah. that time. But at the same time, he, he still can, he still has the physicality and the, you know, agility to be this and kind of, grit. and the grit, and the grit, <laughs> the true grit to be uh, a gunslinging, uh, uh, Marshall, so bounty hunter. Yeah, ex <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. And it, that's kind of the thing in the western, in the days of the old western, marshals were bounty hunters, that one and the mm -hmm. same. Which is kind of again, why this is just so like badass and and you know this movie's akin to a steam engine. It just like keeps on just going, going, and going, and it's on one track. Mm -hmm. It's just going <laughs> straight forward, straight toward Tom Chase. Straight towards ooh that. <laughs> That criminal Tom Chaney. It's funny, Josh Brolin, who plays Tom Chaney with a signature dumb wit and a voice like this. He I'm looks so young. He though. looks so Under young. All that hair. I I'm, mean, he looks like a, he's twenty. Yeah, Thanos looks like twenty. <laughs> but that's the what the Coen Brothers bring this uniqueness. And Tom Chaney, he didn't have to talk like that. Like Josh Brolin didn't have to like. <laughs> it's like machine made almost. Like mm -hmm. it, it, it's weird, but but it totally works for his character. But yeah, Josh Brolin third build. He shows up at the hour and 18 mark and has Speaking like... Speaking of billing, sorry, I noticed that the girl is not even on the front cover of the Blu-ray, which I think is nuts. She, her name isn't listed. It's oh, Jeff her Bridges, name. Matt Damon, Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin has like five minutes of screen time. Right. And what is her name? The girl, Rebecca Haley, Haley something? Haley, Rebecca. <laughs> hey, Rebecca Seinfeld. <laughs> yes, sorry. Jerry Seinfeld. No, uh, Haley Steinfeld. I, sorry, I just, I noticed that she wasn't even on the front. I think that's ridiculous. On the front. <laughs> yeah, she, her, uh, for our listeners, her character, she's on the front, but her name Picture is not. Yeah, sure. this is most likely due, this was her first film. Okay. So well, she was not. Crazy. Uh, yes, I agree with you. However, it's a lot of times the if it's your first film, you don't normally your name doesn't really get oh, put. It's just up part there. of the biz. Yeah, just part of the biz inside yeah. baseball. But she certainly broke out with this role, and now she's she has a music career along with an acting career. As I hope well. she didn't sing the last song in the movie because let me tell you, that takes me right out of it. Land of <laughs> Every time no. I watch this movie, I've thrown up when we get to the end. I actually it's kind so of fucking bad. I kind of love it. It's I, so bad. We are you have to be kidding. No, me. no, no. Like, <laughs> wow. 
no, I think I think it 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 toes the line between yodeling and like country yodeling and like an actual real singing voice. Like it's right there. I think for you, it sounds it sounds comical, like it's a parody song. But to me, it's like it's right on that line, baby. Just like right, like like now we're in the old west. Like give me that old land of old. I, I love it. I I'll I'll listen to it. I, hate it. I'll listen to it it's any day, so B. Um, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you a while ago. I don't know. What was I saying? Oh, steam engine. Yeah. Well, that was my point. Um, yeah, it's just heading straight forward. How many times can we say that in one hour? Well, I, right now we're on 10. But, um, another, so do oh, you want changes. to go to another change? Yeah, so another ahead. change that I wanted to talk about is how Labeef and Rooster's relationship is a lot more contentious in the movie than it is in the book. Mm. In the book they're pretty consistently working together sort of against maddie because they both of them keep wanting to leave her behind mm -hmm. and that kind of only happens in the very beginning of the movie where they leave without her and then they cross the river and she has to chase after them mm -hmm. like that's kind of the last time that rooster and labeef work together and i don't know if that changes because rooster hates the way that labeef tries to like spank her and hit her with the switch, but they have a way worse relationship <laughs> in the movie. In fact, Labeef even leaves a lot of the movie, which I'm sure, I guess you don't mind because you don't think Matt Damon's No, I, well, yeah, I get... <laughs> but, but that's a really, that's a pretty big change. And I don't know if that had, if that was due to anything specific with filming or if that was a change that the Coen brothers really wanted to make to the storyline. But I don't really think it has a lot. I don't think it changes much, other than the fact that Rooster and Maddie get closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's my theory. And also, the it adds more drama when Labeef first comes back, and he's kind of thrust into that situation where he's right. approached by Ned Pepper and his gang. That adds some drama to there. And the second time, and this is one of my two problems with the movie, but there's really no reason for him to leave a second time, only for him to come back. Mm. A second time, it's kind of it's kind of that thing in all scripts where at the at the end of the second act, your characters need to be at their low point mm. and kind of the the point of despair. Mm -hmm. And he really only leaves so there can be that surprise when he comes back. Mm. It, like not like there's really no reason for him to to give up at that point in the yeah. movie. I, because I mean, when he leaves, it's like, do you really think that's going to be the last you see of the beef? It's like sure. obviously not. Well, it's Matt Damon. So right. No. And yeah. <laughs> Exactly, though. I mean, that, that those type of things people think about when sure. they watch a movie. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, he's not the end. They're, like, why would he get... He's gone all this way. Doesn't make any sense why he's just like, oh, well, the trail has run cold. Like, I'm going back well, to Texas. After he's, yeah, after he's tracked Tom for, like, five months. So. Yeah, and then, and then he comes back, and his reasoning is that he's just like, I heard I heard the gunshot. It's like, but but you left last night. Like, how did you get back here? So it, it doesn't really make make a lot of sense. I didn't really like that. Yeah, I I don't think there are really any other changes, but I kind of, while we're on the subject of things that I wasn't really too hot on, in both the story and the movie, is kind of, I think the final confrontation was a little rushed. And I might sound like a hypocrite by saying that I liked how the movie isn't too long. It's kind of economical, but it's not too short either. But I feel like they could have, I don't know, I kind of wanted more 
action in there. And, I, and I'm not saying like you need to pepper in action all, Ned, all throughout Ned the Ned Pepper. pepper. The you don't have to Ned Pepper action all through it. But Maddie gets captured and then Rooster comes in the valley and then he has a standoff between the four members of the Pepper gang and then it's like it's over in, in literally a minute. I'm like, oh, it, it's a little, it's still a little underwhelming, that final Interesting. I kind of disagree. I really like how it's short and sweet. Maybe it's just the way that I feel about action. Like, I don't really need it to... Not that I'm saying you need it to have, like, a good movie, but I didn't, I didn't personally miss it. Well, yeah, and I don't think you need it to make a good movie either. I agree with you. However, one of the, the things you get with Westerns is what I like is kind of that like gritty, realistic, bloody violence. And this is, I, I forget that this movie is PG-13. It's, huh. a, it's not even R, which is rare for Coen Brothers. They, they have only made a couple PG-13s in their entire filmography. Well, it works for me because I have a very low threshold and let's talk about the scene well, yes, in, well, in the no, cabin. We'll talk about that. But see, my theory is that the Coen Brothers just made a movie and they weren't thinking about the rating, right? That, that's how you should make a movie, right? And it's violent for a PG-13 movie. Sure. Rated movie. I, I definitely will say that. There's more blood than what's normal. And I think the the MPAA were in a tough place where like, this is too, this is a little too violent for PG-13, but it's not R, so let's go someplace in between. And they kind of went PG-13. But again, I think I'm not this kind of violence hound. I'm not like, I need blood. I need, I need to see people. <laughs> But I kind of, that's kind of what this genre awards you, is that kind of like really gritty, <laughs> true grit violence. So yeah. it, maybe it's not your thing, it's my thing. And again, the, the showdown is li it's literally 30 seconds. And I just wish it was a little more. I'm not asking for a lot, just a little more. That's kind of one of the criticisms I have that doesn't make this movie perfect for me, a little underwhelming. But another... Um, aspect of the movie is that that I like that it kind of has two endings where they kill the Ned Pepper right. gang and Maddie kills Cheney, but then she falls into the pit and you know gets bitten and Rooster saves her and right there's that whole epilogue yeah no and usually you know what I'm glad you said the word epilogue because usually you know how I've talked about how much I like epigraphs and how much I love how there's a bit of a key to set the tone of a novel sure. I very vehemently think that epilogues are not usually a good thing. Ooh. And pray tell. I, so I think to talk I think I talked about it a little bit in the Call Me By Your Name episode and maybe in another one, but Oh yeah, because usually like ep you're saying like epilogues can ruin a good thing. Yes. It's like you have a because, story and then you add why right, add. It's the whole catch-22 about being an artist and knowing when to stop when you have a good thing. Let's take a very simple example, the Harry Potter epilogue oh, of book seven. Like, nice. nobody fucking needed that, J.K. Rowling. Like, that could have been entirely left out. I really hate epilogues that go, you know, 15 years in the future and everyone's fine and everybody is, like, living their best lives now because of this adventure that they had. I'm like... Tone it down. Yeah. <laughs> like there is a little bit of an epilogue in this because there is there are almost three endings because and, and there's the Ned both Pepper the movie and yeah, right okay. there's the Ned Pepper confrontation. There's the scene where Maddie gets bitten by a rattlesnake and Rooster has to get her to the doctor in time to save her. And then there's the scene where Maddie looks for Rooster mm. twenty five years later, and it's not 
technically framed as an epilogue in the book, but usually if there's a jump in 25 years, like that's kind of technically an epilogue. But the reason that this quasi-epilogue doesn't bother me is because she doesn't find Rooster. In yeah. the end, he's died. And I really love that because one of the things I hate about epilogues is like... They're unrealistic. When you come, yes, like when you come to the end of a story, the end of an adventure or a mystery or, you know, whatever your freaking book is about, I like the ones that sort of come back and say like, yeah, but such is life and not everything is a novel. Like that's personally what I like. I think I get the most out of stories that are like that because that is how life is and sometimes we don't get perfect bow ties at the end of our stories. Right. And so that's why I think this novel is so great because she doesn't feel the emotional need to use Rooster as a crutch in any way. Mm -hmm. And then when she finds out that he's died, she does a really, really nice thing to show that she appreciated what he did for her, but no more was she compelled to attend her father's funeral, even for her mother's sake. No more was she emotionally tied to Rooster, even after he had done this incredible thing of not only avenging her father, but also saving her life. Yeah. That was, that was the goal, and that was the end, and she said goodbye to him, and that was the end of their story. She didn't have any lingering feelings, she didn't have any lingering need for him, so they naturally sort of grew apart and never saw each other again. But then she, you know, took him back to her family pot and buried him. Like, that showed the respect he deserved. Right. I just, I love that. I think no. it's a really great way of ending the book. I agree. Yeah, it's it's a great bit of tragic irony after yeah. after Maddie has this hero moment of avenging her father by killing Chaney and then immediately falling into a pit and right. getting bitten by a snake, which will lead to the loss of her arm. It, it, it's... Yeah, it's jarring to see that kind of a hero lose that much. I mean, and then the horse, like the horse, yeah, has killing, to die. killing the horse, and yeah, it's just like you don't normally kind of see that. I mean, she does, she does win, right? She does get what she wants, but th there's a price to mm -hmm. be paid. Exactly, and I think that's really indicative of the time period yeah. that the that Charles Portis is trying to portray. This was a really tough life. Yeah, and oh, yeah. I think we forget that in a lot of accounts, take for example Laura Ingalls Wilder. Obviously there's a lot of loss in those books, but sometimes you really romanticize this post-Civil War era. You know, the further we get from time periods like that, the further we get from the realities of just living on the frontier. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine how hard it would be. So I like that it's really rough in the end and that she loses her arm and, you know, the horse dies. Like, I think those things are, like, realistic. Like, of course there's not a doctor five miles away, you know, like, when she yeah. gets the snake bite. Like, all that stuff really climaxes in a really, like, realistic way. And kind of a small change that even drives home that point uh, between the novel and the book. This is something that was in the novel. Um, at, at the end, at the end with that coda, it's revealed that Rooster even never tried to contact Maddie mm. after their adventure was over. Maddie right. found out that he was in the traveling circus, whereas mm -hmm. in the movie... Um, Rooster wrote to Maddie and that's kind of mm -hmm. I like that change too because it doesn't necessarily um, outright say that Rooster didn't care about Maddie as much as Maddie cared about Rooster but it's subtly implied that you know Rooster this might have been a point in his life but you know like like all like all journeys life journeys you you, you grow apart you move on and and, and he was paid for a job. Yeah, like yeah, ultimately, he, he did like, a job. Yeah, like so. she might have made an impression mm -hmm. on him, but that is exactly what he 
did it for a living. Like he was paid to go find people and bring them back <laughs> like yeah. to face their punishment. So yeah. Amen. Well, let's get into some fun facts, shall sure. we? <laughs> the role of Lucky Ned Pepper was played by actor Barry Pepper. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Barry Pepper, who was the sniper in Saving Private Ryan. Great, huh. fantastic role. Great job in this movie. Yeah, oh yeah. He's so fun and such a gross <laughs> Yeah, with his, his teeth and his spit when he's yeah. talking. That angle he has when he's, you know, standing on Maddie's face yeah. and talking to Rooster, you know, from afar. And yeah. his spit is oh, it's coming down on the dirty frame. Dirty and, oh yeah, yeah great acting. Um, also, there's a quick voiceover from... Maddie's lawyer in the film, Jay Noble Daggett, and that voice is J.K. Simmons, uh, you know, friend that's of cool. the Coen Brothers. He appears in a lot of the Coen Brothers films. Yeah, he that's his voice, J.K. Simmons. I recognize that voice right away because... Yeah, Danny did. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm currently watching... Danny on the quick draw. <laughs> Give me shells again. I recognize his voice because I'm watching uh, Counterpart, which is a stars show, just dropped on Amazon Prime. Love that. Quick plug for that. Oh, Steven Spielberg also was one of the producers on this film. Very interesting. He doesn't produce a lot of Coen Brothers films, but that was kind of a cool little thing. Yeah, I'm about to have that. I mean, no more fun fact. I think fun. it's fitting that we have a short episode for this because it's such a short book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an, I mean, like, what more can we say? It's like just a solid story told well by some great American filmmakers. Here's, here's something I could say. Ooh. You know, something we didn't talk about is the line... Well, we can talk about this quickly, but the line that Tom Cheney repeats, everything's against me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. I think it just shows like how evil he is because he doesn't really care about anything except himself. Yeah. And he has no remorse for anybody that he's hurt. For example, you know, Maddie's father, who was just trying to keep him out of trouble and he shot in cold blood. I love the confrontation between Maddie and Tom. I love that they get that moment. Right. Because Maddie shoots him literally he's twice. Like cocker it's, gun, and he's like, all the way back. Yeah. Oh, it's such a great moment. I mean, he's like, you shot me. I didn't think you'd really do it. And she's like, what do you think now? <laughs> God, it's so great. Uh, what I love about the character of Tom Chaney is that I would describe him as a sharp idiot. Like he's mm. both he's both those things. So when he has that confrontation with Maddie in the river there, he he's smart enough to know that Maddie was lying about all the marshals that mm. were just over the hill. He's like obviously not. He's like, well, I would oblige them to come after me. Like that's a that's a strong play. And to and he's kind of like and he's smart enough to kidnap her. Like right, he knows he shouldn't just leave her, let her go. Smart yeah. enough kidnapper and he as as Labeef mentions like he's a crafty son of a gun mm -hmm. like he, he knows how to escape he knows how to look out for himself right right look out out for himself and escape and he's been evading the law for seemingly a really long time just right. jumping around he's not doing too hot in Ned Pepper's he's, gang well but. he's murdered a senator he murdered a dog I guess it's mentioned in the book like yeah he's so yeah a he thief. He's, yeah. he's an idiot, but he, when it comes to thiefing and being a criminal, he has some he has some smarts. Street smarts right. is kind of the term, I'd say. And I guess another thing, just to like wrap up a couple things, a shout out to Charles Portis's writing. So many of the characters that are so well portrayed in the movie 
are very true to his writing, and I really wanted to highlight the auctioneer that Maddie buys mm, the ponies back That's from. a great scene, too. Incredible scene, almost verbatim taken from the original text, right. which is so incredible. When she comes back in, he sort of, like, starts, and he goes, are we trading again? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, that's incredible. The woman who plays the innkeeper... Mm-hmm. is so funny that's almost taken exactly from the book as well she's obviously a gossip and can't I'll keep her mouth shut I'll give you a gun sack for a nickel <laughs> right exactly like those things are so funny that was so well portrayed yeah N- Ned Pepper yeah, yeah Ned again Pepper. Barry Pepper very underrated actor he's not in a lot which is surprising because he's solid in every film he's been in. Even the bad ones. He starred in Battlefield Earth. Oh, another character that did a great job was the guy who plays Yarnell. Mm-hmm. Her, her keeper, I guess, when he takes her up to retrieve her father's body. Like, he has a couple seconds of screen time, really, and he's, like, really consistent. And the Undertaker, the Irish Undertaker, that... Yes. If you like left... to sleep, <laughs> if you like to kiss him, it'll be all right. Yeah, that's in the book, right. which, again, but it, incredible But writing. in the book, he only says it once. In the movie, he says it right. twice. And then he's also, <laughs> he keeps on, like, the Coen brothers just can't help himself and, like, make With him characters. as weird. Yeah. yeah. I want well, to... Not... Oh, sorry, just one more thing. Sorry. So it's not in the book that Maddie ends up sleeping with the corpses. Right. Which is a funny little detail where she's just like, it just goes to show her character is just like, yep, I need a place to sleep and this is where I need I'll to sleep, it. so I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> like... um, I wanted to shout out two more below the line people for this movie. I quickly mentioned that I didn't like the casting of Matt Damon. That's still true. However, everyone else is so well cast. I wanted to shout out casting director um, Ellen Chenoweth. Uh, I think she did fantastic job with this movie again even though matt damon was not well cast in my opinion composer carter burwell who Mm -hmm. you asked me for his name because you were so taken with his music i I think even the score is just so traditional and it's it's you know a classic western it's very pastoral Mm. or religious in its themes there's no really frills to it it's just there and it it serves its job like a good score should it doesn't really overshadow the picture at all so carter burwell uh he was nominated for fargo too one of the great scores so yeah well i wanted to go back to casting i apologize the two guys that play very minor roles the two guys that they come across in Ned Pepper's cabin, Donald Gleason and the other guy. <laughs> yeah. A Methodist and a son of a bitch. Yep. <laughs> they're so funny, even though they're literally locked in death grip half the time you see him. Yeah. So well cast. Really funny. Kudos to Ellen oh, and the, the random old guy that they come across with the dead guy on the horse. When oh, like and the bearskin. Yeah, that's yeah. such a weird, the funny moment. That's not that's not in the book, but right. it's so quirky and like funny. <laughs> yeah, that's typical. Anyway, typical Coen sorry, Brothers. I've completely gone off the tracks with this. No, how, hey, how would you rate the movie out of four stars? Um, like the movie is almost perfect. Like I said, I didn't like how the beef randomly leaves uh, at the end for no reason, and I wish the closing battle was a little more climactic a little more western violence not a lot again so i think the movie is is just a solid three and a half out of four stars for me like right. a- almost perfect and the book you read the book too uh, yeah yeah listened listened to the book yeah i would say it's solid too i don't normally rate the 
the book, but I mean, so three and a half too. Yeah, a three and a half out of four. Three and a half too. Right. Well, I am going to give the book four out of four stars, no question. Not only do I suggest everybody listening to this podcast should go read the book, I also think that you should just buy it as a gift for someone because there's literally nobody who could not like this book. I'm going to say it right now. If they don't like it, send them to me and I will set them straight. She'll kill them. <laughs> Get revenge. Yikes. <laughs> Not on the recording. Jesus. Oh. And then for the movie, the only thing I would ding it for, because I truly love it, the only thing I ding is the fucking ending song. I just cannot. I forgot about it the second time we watched it and it came on and as soon as it started coming, I was just like, no, no, this is erasing the entire enjoyment that I got from the rest of the movie. It's just so bad. It's so bad. I'm sorry. It's jarring and it's sharp in my ears like a dagger getting shoved into my brain. That's a little much and it's also going to be my uh, alarm in the morning for the rest of the time. So you're welcome. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for listening. This was a blast. Yeah, I had just a good like time. Yeah. Sorry for rambling a little bit more than usual, but I that's what that's what happens when you when you love something. It just it just, I just can't shut up about erupts it. out of you. Well, this has been Film is Lit and prepare for next week because we are covering Annihilation. Annihilation. Yes, the book written by Jeff Vandermeer and the movie which came out twenty eighteen, directed by my boy Alex Garland. I got a bunch of boys. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so super pumped about that. The book and the movie the Less. book is a very quick read, yeah. so if you want to prepare by actually reading, it's, I mean, it took me probably five hours to read. I read it in like a day. Yeah, quick, breezy, quick easy breeze read. So, yeah, we look forward to that. Laura, you're going to get some nightmares from that movie, but I'll oh, cover your eyes for certain points. But um, thanks for listening, and remember, when all is said and done, all that matters is you just tend to your business and stay true to your grit.